Welcome to the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast, a podcast created to inform patients, families, and caregivers about important health transformation topics. Since the 2001 Crossing the Quality Chasm Report by the Institute of Medicine, our nation's healthcare system has recognized its need to improve quality of care by way of six important aims that make healthcare safe, efficient, effective, patient-centered, timely, and equitable. But we cannot hope to cross this chasm and achieve these aims until we make fundamental changes to the whole healthcare system. All levels of this work require dramatic improvements from the patient's experience. So this podcast is dedicated to you, the voices most underutilized resource in healthcare, our patients' voices. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Natasha Washington, president and founder of ATW Health Solutions and sponsor for the Patient Partner Innovation Community. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. I am your host today, Desiree Collins-Bradley, and I'm really excited to have this wonderful conversation with our special guest, Jerry Baumblatt. But before we get into the conversation, I want to make sure that we highlight our sponsor for this episode. This episode is brought to you by ATW Health Solutions. ATW Health Solutions is a Chicago-based healthcare advisory and consulting firm that has gained national recognition for transforming healthcare delivery systems from ordinary to best in class. At ATW Health Solutions, we use a data-driven, evidence-based approach to make healthcare better by focusing on improving quality, safety, and health equity in organizations and government agencies. Simply put, We create and implement innovative solutions for the right problems and the right people. So Jerry, you know, I am excited to kind of dive into this conversation. This is one of a multi-part series that I'm focusing on patients as partners. We know that patients partner with our healthcare environments locally, nationally, and everything in between. And I kind of want to make sure that we touch on every aspect of being a patient partner. So with that, Jerry, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thank you for having me. So I've been working really in patient advocacy, engagement, and education for over 25 years. I have designed, co-designed, and tested both print and interactive multimedia resources for every kind of surgery, health condition, shared decision-making, and increasingly for resources to help family caregivers um, who are caring for loved ones with things like dementia or almost anything as our population ages. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, you know, caregiving speaks loud and clear to me as, you know, I'm a caregiver. My daughter has medically complex needs, as most of the listeners know already, but I have a mother that suffers from um, late, I would say, onset Alzheimer's and dementia. And so, you know, watching my father go through being a caregiver has been pretty rough as it has kind of devastated 
the family. So I kind of want you to talk about your advocacy work and family caregiving and what does that look like? Yeah, well, you know, it's a really difficult, complex problem. The first challenge is that a lot of us do not necessarily recognize or identify that we're caregivers. So I work in healthcare, creating resources, and I was literally creating resources for heart failure readmissions, while my own dad, who was a physician, was in and out of the hospital with heart failure and about seven other things. And I think it took me two or three years to figure out that my mom wasn't the only one who was caregiver, that I was also a caregiver, and that it was having a pretty profound impact on my life, my ability to work, my own health and well-being. And unfortunately, a lot of times people don't kind of have that recognition until they're in kind of a crisis mode or already in a pretty bad place. So one of the things that we're really trying to do is just raise awareness. So I'm co-founded an organization called the Difference Collaborative Alliance, which is a nonprofit. And we do research, raise awareness. We've really focused a lot on employers because yes, clinicians and hospitals need to help identify family caregivers and give them resources and training and all of that. But you also spend most of your time at work and it's another place where organizations really need to become aware of how this is impacting their employees um, because we're focusing a lot on, hey, you need to go to the gym or you need to eat healthy, but all that goes out the window, as you know, as caregiving becomes more intense. And the other challenge with caregiving is people tend to think, oh, well, my mom broke her hip or my dad had diagnosis. So I'll take some time off and I'll go help get them through this, you know, transition period. And then I'll be back at work and things will be fine. And most people don't realize, (laughs) no, that's probably the beginning of what on average five years of chaos. And that's the other thing is everybody thinks, oh, this weird chaotic experience, that's just these weird, unfortunate things that are happening to my family. But in fact, that is the experience of having. So we're not helping people recognize when it starts at a time when there could be help and resources they could get that would prevent some of, you can't completely prevent the chaos, right? Because people age, their conditions change, uh, and we have a very fragmented system. But a lot of it is just helping people recognize, hey, caregivers are second order patients. A lot of people don't even recognize they're doing this. They just see it as I'm just helping take care of my dad, right? Like you don't think, oh, and it's not about labeling yourself. It's just about you can't get help for something that you don't realize that you're doing. So it's, it's really complex. And then even when people do realize that they're doing this, it's a different state to state. It's different employer to employer. And it's also just a different experience of caregiving, whether you're caring for a partner or a spouse is very different than caring for an aging family member is very different, as you know, than caring for an ill child or, or adult sibling. Like all of those things are different. And it's different if you're caring for somebody of the same sex or a different sex. And like, Where do you hit these lines of what feels really uncomfortable to do in terms of providing hands-on care or either bathing and grooming and things like that? So it's incredibly complex and people hit these 
hit these walls and burn out and their own health is at risk. And so that's part of what we're trying to raise awareness about. You hit on quite a few topics that kind of resonated with me. One is the employer aspect. And I, you know, this is kind of, I won't say it's the first time I'm hearing of it, but the focus, that real intentional focus um, is the first that I'm hearing because, you know, from my own personal experience, I can tell you, when my daughter was very young, working was impossible because of all the doctor's appointments. And now that I'm watching my parents go through the, the same dynamic with, you know, my father didn't want to retire, but because all he knew was all in gas. And so when my mother started to decline fairly rapidly, he had to make that hard decision to retire but he kind of toughed it out for about two years, working a full-time job, trying to manage that and make sure that she was safe and also kind of be in denial that, hey, you need help here. So, and, and I can tell you that his employer, I don't even think they were aware that he was kind of going through that struggle um, just because I think trying to keep that, that professional safe face at work, you know, we, we know we want to be professional. There's this environment that if I show a little bit of weakness, that that's inferior. So shifting the culture there to support the employees, I think, is extremely important. And then about the resources aspect, you know, I'm in all these Facebook groups, right? We get all our information on Facebook and there's an Alzheimer's support group and I just read story after story where these families have no idea where to get the resources from. The kids are taking care of the parents and they're like, okay, how do I survive this? And all I read, and it's really heavy on my spirit. It's just crisis, crisis, crisis. Like we get to the point where, oh my goodness, like you said, we're in crisis mode. And at some point it's almost, I don't want to say too late, but it's, it's overdue for need to the point of the caregivers are now sick and, you know, right. going yes. through their own health struggles. And so if you're, what is that? I, I heard that somewhere where people say you have to take care of you to be able to take care of others. You do, but it's very, it's very hard to do that. When I, I just remember I would go back and help my mom deal with one crisis with my dad. And then I'd come back to work a day and a half later and get a call going, I got to take him to the ER. You need to come back right away. And my own work, they were just kind of like, you're leaving again. And they were worried about me. But I also, I also was scared that I was coming and going too much. And it's nobody ever sat down and just said, you know, this isn't going to get normal for you anytime soon but we value you, let's figure it out, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and managers aren't trained to do this. And then even if they're enlightened managers who maybe do this on their own, they're not supported in how to do it and how to help people find resources. I remember after my dad passed away, head of HR said to me, oh, well, you know, I said, I only have five, five days off. And I was like the power of attorney, the executor of the will, like, yeah. You know, I also just had stuff I had to get done on top of the whole like grieving and funeral and family and all of that. And I only, you know, you get five days or whatever. And afterwards, when I like struggled to come back, I think I took one extra day and kind of caught a little bit of backlash for it from my manager. 
And the head of HR was like, oh, well, you know, we would have given you more time if you needed it. And I'm like, I didn't know that. My manager didn't know that. I felt mm-hmm. bad asking for one extra day. Yeah. And I'm like employee number four at this place. And I have seniority. So if I don't know this. And my manager had been there a long time too. Nobody knows it. Yeah, Like correct. the fact that you can just come in. I'm like, you have to proactively go and talk to people and create that culture mm-hmm. because Every manager runs things differently and has their own anxieties about their team hitting their deadlines and deliverables. So people want to work for caring cultures and it is a great way to ensure that people don't get sick or injured or or socially isolated. Like we now know how dangerous that is, right? Well, caregivers frequently, their friends fall away, their coworkers fall away people help out at first. And then as people get more sick, it becomes more and more uncomfortable for them to stop mm-hmm. by or to, they don't know how to handle it. So they just kind of disappear. And that even happens to young caregivers, which, you know, people in their twenties and thirties are increasingly caregiving and often don't even have siblings to help. Yeah. And you look around at the end and you don't have any friends. And then your family member who you were taking care of may be gone Mm-hmm. And it's a really profoundly isolating experience. And it often doesn't feel safe to talk about it with coworkers or with managers because mm-hmm. you're trying not to draw attention to the fact that you're like coming in late, leaving early, yep. leaving meetings, yep. phone calls, checking on meds, like, and then you're the crazy person in your office yelling at the doctor on the phone or something. So people yep. are just like, let me just walk around you. <laughs> You know, it, 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 that, that is, you know, such a, a strong point. Well, you know, the work that you're doing at the nonprofit, I hope that it spreads, you know, around the country so others will learn. Because I, I truly feel if you know better, you do better. And yeah. I just think they just don't have the tools and resources they need, you know, to be successful with as an employer. And so, you know, we have to, just like we educate our healthcare systems and we partner with our physicians. Right. Do a little education there too. And I think that that is one way that clinicians could help actually um, is to ask people if they're taking care of anybody who's ill or injured or disabled, because that is the type of thing that I think clinicians need to start to know about who just I am as their patient, right? Because my mom's insurance doesn't care about my health. I'm not on the same policy, but my own, you know, insurer and, Mm -hmm. and clinician should care. And it's not a thing. In fact, I was, I was pretty depressed at the end of my dad's caregiving. And I actually on my own went in to see my doctor and I said, I don't know how much longer this is going to go on because mm-hmm. he's almost passed away like three different times. And I was like, but I don't think I'm doing okay. And I, it, it was hard for me to go in and do that. And my doctor yeah. was great about it, but most people won't even do that, but mm-hmm. it should have been something that my doctor was aware of much earlier on. Mm-hmm. And she maybe even could have helped say, you know, people go through a lot with this, like, yeah. uh-huh. and we're a healthcare family and it was still too much. So I can't imagine what other families deal with. You know, and oftentimes we don't even know. I remember me and my husband went into an appointment with my daughter and she had been very sick and life and death kind of situation and decisions that we had to make. And it had taken such a toll on us. We weren't even aware that it had taken this toll. So we go into the appointment 
And I guess she noticed like, okay, I know these people and they're just off. Something's not right. So and she knew the background of what we have been going through. And instantly in the appointment, she did two things. Um, she brought in a psychiatrist that was on staff to treat the families and the kids because, you know, dealing with complex medical needs is heavy. And so she instantly was like, OK, um, I wasn't working at the time. My husband was. And she said, OK, dad, you need a couple days off. And he was like, I don't have any more time. And she was like, give me your employer's phone number. I'm calling their HR department. Right then and there in that office, she called his HR department and wow. told I am such and such, da, 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 da. Um, he needs a couple of days off. What do I need to do? She typed up the letter right then and there on the phone with the lady, faxed it over, and they approved him, I think, for like three or four days off from work instantly. And then we went in and had a session with the psychiatrist separately and then together instantly because she and and I was so grateful for that because we weren't even aware that right we were getting ready to just crash but she saw those triggers being a healthcare provider and was like okay I need to intervene with this family right now so I you know I appreciate but that is not the norm that doesn't happen all the time but why not Right. Well, and I feel like at least in pediatrics, they kind of have to know who the family caregivers are because it's a minor. But in so many other cases, it's also a huge equity issue, right? Like a lot of us are taking care of partners who we're not married to or of a cousin or an aunt or a neighbor. And those things don't often fall under FMLA or formal leave policies. Um, I had a friend who was taking care of of his ex-boyfriend whose family had rejected him basically. And he ended up losing his job, his home, you know, his profession basically because of this really intense, they were like, why is this your job? And it's like, well, he doesn't have anybody else. And that's even happened. Um, I had a friend who was taking care of, of a widowed uh, sister who was dying and the, the employer was saying, why is that your job to take care of your sister? And it's like, well, her husband passed away yeah. and her kids don't live in this country. So mm-hmm. I'm it. Like, what do you yeah. mean? You yeah. know? And so, so we have to have a broader and it, it also adversely affects, of course, some groups more than others where different populations are more likely to be intensive caregivers. Most people need to spend about $7,000 a year of their own money on caregiving to help subsidize. A lot of people do not have that. And you can tell people, oh, you can take leave, but if it's not paid leave, they can't afford to do it. So it's, there's a huge amount of equity issues. And I think, unfortunately, COVID has maybe Mm -hmm. amplified that and made it a little bit more visible because it's one of those problems where it's hidden in plain sight. Like people know it's there, but they're yeah. just kind of like, what are you going to do about it? And it's yeah. like, well, try something because people yeah. are leaving the workforce and having to leave the workforce or go part-time or do all kinds of things mm-hmm. uh, to caregive because we don't support them well in this country. So yeah, it's a huge challenge work together to come up with a solution you know I tell people you know we just you have to roll up your sleeves and and get to work you know what what, which what you're doing which is awesome 
So I kind of want you to take a little shift. And I know you've done quite a bit around patient education. So yes. I kind of want you to kind of tell us a little bit about what, what you've been doing there and some insights around that. Yeah. So my whole like background has been around patient engagement for both families and patients. And a lot of it is really making sure that we're meeting people's informational needs. I mean, we know that people forget about 80% of what you tell them during a visit. So even for me personally, when I was in my 20s, I'd been in a car accident, I would go to physical therapy. I just wanted to get better and not have pain and be able to ride bikes and, and do things. And I would get home and I thought I was doing the exercises right. And I'd come back the next day, the next week, and I'd be like, oh, you didn't point your toe down or you forgot this nuance. So you were working the wrong muscle. So you're not getting better. And I was like, where on the stick figure drawing that you gave (laughs) me, was I supposed to be able to get all of those nuances, right? And, And we know this is true. And we also know that there are huge health literacy issues, right? I mean, people do not know very basic things. And then even if you're a clinician, you know, I remember my dad was a doctor, but when he needed eye surgery, he didn't know what they were saying to him. Like, mm-hmm. how are you numbing my eyes so yeah. you can operate on it? Like people have very basic questions that we assume are things they would understand. And so a lot of it is they also don't know what to do, how to do it, or why to do it. Um, I had a friend who smoked and she needed dental surgery and uh, they told her, don't smoke. It's not safe. Yeah. And I, she got dry socket and I was like, well, did you smoke? And she's like, well, yeah. And I was okay. like, well, didn't they tell you not to? I, I said, so smoking affects blood flow. So now you're not getting enough blood flow. And that's why you have the dry socket. And she's like, well, if they'd said that, I would have smoked. Like, I didn't understand the connection. Just doctors tell you not to smoke, yeah, right? Right. Mm-hmm. They're always saying that. She's like, I had no idea that this is what could happen from it. So we're not making those connections for people, right? They don't understand what they're supposed to do, why they're supposed to do it. And so they can't act in their own best interest, but they also can't remember or even understand a lot of what we tell them. So a lot of what I've done is working around asynchronous patient education, where Yes, I'm telling you these things, but like, I often can't be at doctor's appointments with my mom. So as her caregiver, I don't know what happened. So to be able to get a video or Mm -hmm. a decision aid or some kind of education that fills me in on what she's supposed to do, how she's supposed to do it and why she's supposed to do it Mm -hmm. is a huge benefit. So I currently work with a social good organization called DACALA, and they've literally created a free patient education platform. So it's free for hospitals, free for clinics, free for patient advocates. And it lets you basically pull together any information you've created or free information that you find online. Because you can tell somebody, oh, hey, go to this website and watch this three minute video about your breast cancer. But even if they go to a website that you recommend to them, you don't know if they went there and then you don't know, did they watch the right thing or did they watch something on metastatic breast cancer? Now they're totally freaked out and confused. Right. So what we want to do is curate resources for people and actually prescribe those. So like I, I could say, Oh, I want you to watch this little video about heart failure that I want you to 
you know, look at this decision aid about whatever it might be. And then here's a little video on how to weigh yourself every day so that you know exactly how to do it. And I would be able to see, oh, you, you looked at that information, you completed that information and even be able to do things like ask you questions about, you know, either knowledge questions or questions about your values and preferences to make sure that we're, we're actually putting together a treatment plan that makes sense for you. But meeting people's informational needs so that they can engage in their care is so important because when they're sitting there in front of the clinician, mm-hmm. they have limited time. There's all kinds of power dynamics. Yeah. People don't ask questions or people think they have it. And then like me, they get home and they go, wait a minute. Yeah. What exactly what is I supposed to do and when? And so this is a way that people can review information at home as often as they want. They can share it with their family and family caregivers so that everybody's wow. on the same page. And it's it's a great way to also build relationships because yeah. people are so grateful to get that kind of resource. So that's basically what I've been working on. And I've been, it's, it's something that... Um, where even organizations like the CDC have made great interactive decision aids for things like breast cancer and prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. People don't know they exist. Doctors don't know they exist. This is a way for clinics to actually prescribe that resource to patients so that they know, wow. oh, you went there, you looked at the right thing, you got the right information, and I know that you saw it. So it's a really great way to also build those relationships because people feel really cared for when they get that kind of curated information from their, from their healthcare team. That is amazing. I had not heard of that either. Oh my God. You know, give us a website. Where can we get more information? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, It's called DACALA, but the website is DACO, D-O-C-O dot L-A. So www.doco dot L-A. And literally anybody can sign up and create a free account. So the idea isn't that patients can go in there and search for stuff because we're not trying to create the recreate Google, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's literally for any kind of clinician, a dentist, a health coach, a surgeon to go in and you can create your own courses so you can upload your own resources that you've created, or it even has tools where you can like use your webcam to create videos right in the platform and things like that. So for example, the physical therapist who created it, he has like his like videos for like SI joint exercises, right? And then he'll use his webcam to record like a 60 second video just for you to say, okay, I want you to look at these videos. They're gonna remind you how to do these exercises. And remember, you're going to call me if you have any pain with this, this, or this. And I want you to do these three times a day or whatever. It oh, is. I love so, that. And then it's also a way to go into this uh, kind of patient education content clearinghouse or marketplace and find resources. And I'd say about 80, 90% of the resources on there are free. And the other ones are pretty low cost because you can pick and choose what you want. So you can say, mm-hmm. oh, I just want these three videos on heart failure. And it'll be, you know, like a small monthly licensing fee instead of saying, oh, you have to buy this whole library of the yeah, patient yeah. education. Yeah. yeah. And so organizations can also upload their resources or make their resources available. And we're also doing webinars to socialize different types of resources. Like we've f- been focusing a lot on bariatric resources and kidney health resources, yeah. but 
any and all resources are needed because there's a lot of great stuff out there, but the clinical teams don't know where it lives or don't know how to find it. Wow. You know, this, I, I could see a lot of medical associations, you know, using the tools for their patients and members. There's just a lot of potential with this. I know I can't wait to look up the website and educate myself and then share it um, among the community because it just seems like one-stop shop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the whole thing is I've worked in patient education a long time and I made a lot of really high quality patient education videos and interactive, but the problem is people still usually want to, you know, kind of personalize that for their population. And so this is a way to do that. Like you can say, oh, here's a video or a resource from the CDC or from whatever it might be on COVID, but then here's my own little video or information about what our office is doing to keep people safe as they come in or know what to expect if they need to come in for an in-person appointment. So there's all types of ways that you can really tailor the information for the population, you know, that you work with. So that's why I think it's super helpful and important. And again, I think the relationship building is really undervalued. It's one thing that you deliver information to people, but it's another thing that when they come back in, they know how to have a better conversation with you. And they feel like you did this extra thing for them in addition to the in-person appointment or the video visit. You know, like everybody focuses on telehealth as like video visits, but the bigger opportunity is actually all the space between the visits, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So- Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, I really appreciate you sharing these resources with us. You know, it's been a wonderful conversation. I hope that our listeners have learned something and can take those resources and share your nonprofit website. What was that website? Oh, so we have, um, so we haven't set up, we have the difference. It's just the differencecollaborative.com. And what you'll see is we're both a nonprofit arm and an LLC. So it's kind of one website right now. But that's just differencecollaborative.com. And especially if you go to research and to, to like events and resources, there's a lot of, of resources on there, like webinars and podcasts and all kinds of things about caregiving. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jerry, this has been a wonderful conversation. It's always a pleasure speaking with you and spending this time with you. I can't wait to share and I hope that our listeners share. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. And as always, guys, be engaged. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com.